These weeks we're, that I'm in the pulpit, this is my last Sunday for a while, we've been using the lectionary as the basis for our talking about relationships. This morning we're going back to Paul's letter to the Philippians, remembering as we do this that we're joining Christians in every part of our globe by looking at this passage. There are Christians in Africa, Asia, China, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, uh, South America, that in their churches are looking at these same passages today that we've been reading and listening to. And we're joined everywhere with this desire to hear God speak to us through his word, through these verses. Last Sunday, we looked at Paul's desire that the church in Philippi, and our church as well, should live worthily of the gospel, a life worthy of the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ is our Savior and our King. We saw that the primary mark of this worthiness in their lives was to be unity. Paul desired to see them working together as a team to advance the good news of Jesus into our world. But we see from today's reading that they weren't that united. The church in Philippi was falling far short of Paul's desires for them and his hopes. Bottom line, there were relationship problems within that congregation. Paul offers some gentle correction to the church, uh, gentle but firm, and in his words we see a reflection of what was going on in that congregation of believers. So I'd like you to take your pew Bible or your own Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read the first four verses. It's on page 900 in, in your pew Bible if you wish to look it up in that. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. The, Paul begins with this reminder that as Christians, our relationships with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are, are, should, should shape and guide the way we relate to each other. Uh, this we must not forget. We mentioned it the first week. We mentioned it last week. I hope we'll keep mentioning it. The way we treat each other is based on the way God treats us. The bar is set high. We forgive as we're forgiven. We accept others as we've been accepted. Now, Paul begins this passage by saying, If then, therefore, there is any encouragement in Christ, this is a particular type of Greek construction. And, and so we don't translate it usually with if. We translate it with the word since. We say then, since there is encouragement in Christ. Therefore, since there is encouragement in Christ. If you want to know about the grammar, you can ask me. I don't think you do. Uh, he says, therefore, since there's encouragement in Christ, there's no doubt in his mind that we are encouraged in Christ. Now, Paul tends to pack a lot into his sentences. And some of his, some of his sentences are longer than some of our paragraphs. That's just the fact of how Paul wrote. So, so speaking from... 
a letter like the Philippian letter is very difficult because the way he writes is so dense. So to try to make it easier for you, I'm going to give you three lists this morning. Now, Wendy will tell me that only one list. I'm going to give you three because Paul gave you three. And, and the first list is, is a list of the realities that are ours through Jesus Christ, what, what is real in our life because of Christ. The second list are the relational problems that happened in the Philippian church. And the third list of the attitudes that were behind those problems. So the first list, there are four realities in the Christian life that Paul says should shape our relationships with others. First is the encouragement we have in Christ. Paraclesis, same word as paraclete. A paraclete is the helper that comes alongside of us. This is, in fact, a short definition of the incarnation, what happened when Christ came into the world. He came alongside of us as God to do for us, to do for us what we couldn't do ourselves, to redeem us from slavery and death, slavery to sin and death. Now, when someone comes alongside me when I'm trying to do something and comes alongside to help me, I get encouraged. Wendy and I, with the help of Garage Masters, built a new garage this summer, but, but I took it upon myself to recite it and paint it and put a new siding on it. That's a daunting task, but my grandson and my son came along and helped me. It's very encouraging when somebody comes alongside us to help. Even the simplest reflection upon everything that Christ has done for us, as we just did in communion, should encourage us, should strengthen us. The second thing on Paul's list is consolation of love, parathumion. Now, both words start with the word para, to come alongside. What comes alongside us in this case is a voice, not a helper, but a voice. And it's the voice of God telling us that we're loved. All that's packed in that little word, paramutheon, that alongside us comes a consoling, gentle voice. And what does it speak to us of? It speaks to us of love. The voice that says what the hymn writer captured, loved by everlasting love, led by grace, that love to know. The third thing is the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, koinonia. We know that word. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that unites us. We aren't united as a church because we all think alike, because we don't. We know that. We aren't united because we share the same background or social status, because we don't. We are united because, as we said last Sunday, the Holy Spirit has baptized us, has immersed us into one singular body, the body of Christ. We are one because of the Holy Spirit's activity. Now, the, the last thing that, that shows up on this list is uh, the nobler viscera. Uh, the King James Version translates it as bowels and mercy. And bowel is not a word that we usually use in church. But nobody knows what one is anyway hardly anymore, so I guess it doesn't matter. Uh, in Paul's time... The seat of human emotions was not the heart. It was in all of the noble inner organs, the nobler viscera. The heart, the lungs, the liver, the kidneys. That's where resided the seat of our emotions. So if you were speaking to your beloved back in those days, you would say to that person, I love you with my heart, my lungs, my kidneys, my liver, 
That's just how it worked. So what Paul is talking about here is, is that we love, because of what we have in Christ, my notes are getting mixed up here, because of what we have in Christ, because we have this encouragement, because we have this love, because we have this fellowship, this unity, the result of that is that we have sympathetic feelings towards one another. That's what Paul means when he talks about bowels and mercies. We, we have sympathetic feelings towards one another. Excuse me, I'm sorry. I don't usually get my notes all turned around, do I? Well, sometimes I do. Yet in spite of all this, uh, did we get that last slide? Did we miss this slide? I think I left one out. Move one more. Okay, that's where we are. Uh, in spite of this, we would think this is a beautiful church, but in spite of this, there are some serious behavioral problems in the church in Philippi. And there are three. First, the church suffered from disagreements. Now, we don't know what those disagreements were within the church. Uh, likely, there were a multitude of issues. I was at a church in a small town once. It was a very small town. And I noticed that there were two churches of the same denomination. So I said to the person I was visiting, I said, why are there two churches of the same denomination in this small town? The person answered with one word, coffee. I'm not making this up, serious. Coffee, that kind of coffee. Apparently, there was a split in the church because there was disagreement about who should make the coffee because there was a difference between how the two people made the coffee. Some preferred the coffee that one made over another. Now, there's two churches in that town. There were likely other issues involved, but the agreement was serious enough to cause a split. Now, speaking into the circumstances in Philippi, Paul says, make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other. Don't get divided by the things that you have different opinions about. Be united with one another. And then he adds, loving one another. That's because there was within the congregation a shortage or deficiency of love. Now, now what does it mean to love Someone. We know that words are cheap. Um, we know that it's very easy to say to someone, I love you. But we also know that loving people is a lot more than words. It's actions. It's behavior. It's attitudes. Let me ask you a question. I'm going to give you about 30 seconds to come up with the answer. You don't have to share it. I just want you to come up with the answer and sort of fix it in your own mind. What does a church look like when people love one another? Whatever your answer may have been, I think that would be a nice church to be part of, wouldn't it? People need to be loved. The Philippians needed to love each other. We need to love each other. Uh, It's part of Jesus' operating instructions for us. So now I am giving you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Uh, Ken played a lovely old hymn for the offertory, uh, Brethren, We Have Met to Worship. And one line is, let us love our God supremely. Let us love each other, too. That's what the church needs to be. 
Now, those are the first two problems. They weren't united by a common purpose, and, but were instead divided by disagreements. They weren't in the practice of loving each other. Now we move to the third problem. Now, last Sunday, we saw that Paul was encouraging them to compete together, to work as a team. We actually, the word he used was an athletic word, to compete together as a team. And the goal post towards which they were competing or working was to advance the gospel of Jesus as our Lord and Savior and King into the world within the circles of their relationships. However, they weren't working as a team. Paul makes it very obvious. They weren't working together as a team. He says, I want you to be working together with one mind and one purpose. But, but sadly, because of their disagreements and their lack of love, they weren't working together as a team. So those are the problems within the congregation. We've, we've seen the relationship we have with God that should shape our relationships. We've seen the problems in the church. Now we're going to look at four attitudes that were underlying these behavioral problems. We're not going to spend a lot of time on these because, you know, frankly, we're pretty familiar with these attitudes. One, they were selfish. Paul's correction to them is, don't be selfish, he says in this verse. Don't be selfish. Number two, they suffered from vanity. He said, don't try to impress each other. You're, you're so busy trying to impress each other, you're not getting the work of the church done. We'll revisit vanity in, in, in a minute. Pride. He says, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. I'd like to take a, a closer look at this. this. He literally says, with humility of mind, treat others as better than yourselves. By the way, here's a little extra thing from C.S. Lewis from uh, Mere Christianity. Uh, I was telling my youngest son this week that he needs to read Mere Christianity, and he said he would. Uh, he, he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Now, he explores that very well in, in that book, and I, I commend it to you for your reading. You can write it down, that little bit of wisdom, if you're taking notes. But we need to pause and consider how shocking the word of Paul is at this point in his letter to those citizens in Philippi who live in the region of Greece but are Roman citizens. When Paul wrote this, humility was not a virtue. Humility was associated with failure and shame. That's why the actual title for today's sermon, which you probably saw in your bulletin, but I haven't mentioned until now, is The Contemptible Virtue. In Paul's day, humility was not a virtue. It was something you held in contempt. The Greek and Romans had no interest in humility. It was a sign of weakness. It was rather the spread of Christianity with the example and teaching of Jesus that led to humility being seen finally as a good thing or as a virtue. Back to what Paul said, with humility of mind to think of others as better than yourselves. What the Greeks and Romans re preferred was philotemia, uh, philo, love, Philadelphia, love of the brothers, the love of honor is what the Greeks and Romans preferred. They loved honor. And they went to any length necessary to advertise their honor, to tell you how great they were. You remember Augustus from last week? The emperor 
who was, who was emperor when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. I, I always look at him and I think it's a bit of a John Travolta disco pose. Uh, but some of you aren't old enough to remember John Travolta. Uh, he's a good example of, of this Roman love of honor. He wrote a book called The Achievements of the Divine Augustus. He wrote it. He had it inscribed on Brahm plaques to be put on his mausoleum, and he had it published in copies and spread all over the empire. That's the love of honor. That's what the Romans and the Greeks valued. For Paul to say to them, with humility of mind, treat others as better than yourself, was shocking. Absolutely shocking. It's hard for us to hear it the way they would have heard that. We'll move on. The fourth attitude that Paul addressed was self-centeredness. We might call this looking out for number one. Paul says, don't look out for your own interests, but take on an interest in others. Now, these are four attitudes that left unchecked will do serious damage to any kind of relationship. Work relationship, school relationship, home relationship, church relationships. Sadly, we're all infected by these attitudes. These, these destructive attitudes are painfully common. Who of us isn't sometimes selfish or vain or full of pride or intent on looking out for self, number one? So the question rightly is, what do we do about it? How can we correct these attitudes that damage our relationships? Paul has an answer. And the remedy is, is fairly simple, to replace the old ingrained attitudes with a new attitude, an attitude replacement, if you will. And the attitude that we need to replace the old attitudes is the mind of Christ, that which is on display in the life of Christ. Paul says you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Now, what Paul quotes here uh, was certainly a poem by construction, and it may have actually been a hymn that was being sung in, in the churches that Paul had established throughout the Roman Empire. We don't know. But it has the feeling of a hymn that, that he quotes. Uh, follow with me as we look at verses 5 to 11. You must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Now, a slightly different translation of verse 5 reads this, and, and it's an important translation because it's a plural. This is how you should think among yourselves. This letter is not written to an individual. It's written to a church. This should be the attitude of Elam Chapel that we're looking at this morning, to be Christ-like, to be like-minded with Jesus. Is that possible? I, I believe it is. As each of us strive to follow Jesus and become like him, our church will become like him. Now, this poem or song encapsulates the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the exaltation of Jesus. It's amazing how much he crams into those little short phrases. More importantly, though, it, it gives us a deeper understanding of the attitude or mind of Christ, the, the humility 
is outlined in these verses. He took on the humble position of a slave. He humbled himself in obedience to God. Now, Paul says he was fully God, but he didn't cling to that. Now, this is... Remember we we sang this morning how, how Jesus took up his cross and Jesus Messiah... Uh, it's when we see Jesus carrying his cross that we really begin to plug into the mind of Christ. He was fully divine, but he didn't cling to that. Literally, Paul said he emptied himself. Uh, we, we call this passage the kenosis passage because that's the word kenosis. He emptied himself of something. Now, we can, we can know pretty well what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that he emptied himself of his divinity. Earlier in the service, we remembered his death on the cross as our substitutionary atonement. If he were merely human, his death on the cross would mean nothing for us. Well, it might have been a nice example. It might have been a, uh, an interesting story. It would mean nothing to us. It was only because he was God on that cross that that death has anything to do with us. He died for us to reconcile us to God. Only God could do that. So he didn't empty himself of his divinity. He might have emptied himself of some of the privileges of divinity, which is how our new living translation in the pew translated. He didn't cling to it, but, but let go of his privileges. But the way Paul literally says is that he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and entering into our humanity. That's how he emptied himself. It wasn't as much as letting go of something as taking something on. He took on our humanity. He became like us. And then he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Now, this is a bit of a weak translation. Did he humble himself? Was he obedient to death? Who won? Let me just give you that question. Who won on the cross? Wasn't death. Death didn't win. He humbled himself to God. He humbled himself in obedience to God's plan that he, as God, would die on the cross in our place. Now, the attitudes we looked at earlier. Uh, they're one thing. Having the mind of Christ is quite another thing. We, we ask ourselves, how, how could we make the mind of Christ ours? I, I think it's a necessary habit for building godly relationships. I don't think we'll do it without having the mind of Christ. If we're going to be the church God wants us to be, it's essential. We, we, we have to have the mind of Christ. We must be willing to humble ourselves to serve the well-being of other people. How do we do that? It feels impossible, doesn't it? But listen to what Paul says. Verse, middle of verse 12 and then verse 13. Work hard to show the results of your salvation. Obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and power to do what pleases him. We can't do it on our own. We don't have to do it on our own. It is God himself who will give us the will and the power 
to take on ourselves as individuals and as a church the mind of Christ, for us to be humble in the way that Christ was humble. Now, if you're sitting there and you're saying, I think I want the mind of Christ to rule my life, to govern my behavior, to govern my relationships. If you're thinking that, even if it's only a small flicker of a flame of thought, where's it coming from? From the Holy Spirit. He's planting that in you. Now, what's your job? Paul says, work hard. He doesn't say, work hard to be saved. That would be completely contrary to Paul. He's basically saying, work hard to figure out how this works in your life. So he's saying, work at this a little bit. Fan that flame into life, that flame that the Holy Spirit's put in you. To want to have the mind of Christ controlling your life, blow on it. Encourage it. Some, Some of you probably wore the What Would Jesus Do bracelet. I never owned one. Um, But it's not a bad idea when you're in a difficult relationship to think, what would Jesus do right now? How would Jesus answer this question? How would Jesus respond to this criticism? That's how we fan that flame of wanting to have the mind of Christ rule in our lives. We're going to sing a a closing hymn. And uh, written by a woman who's to the best of our knowledge, only one hymn. It's the only hymn that we have. We know very little about her. She was, she was born in the United Kingdom in Britain, uh, moved to Seattle, Washington, not a bad place to live, went to study in Germany, went back to Seattle, lived there until she was 97 and died. But she wrote this one hymn that's a remarkable hymn. It's May the Mind of Christ My Savior. And we're going to sing this together as our response to what Paul says. Let our lives be governed by the mind of Christ.